The series that we're sharing um, is called Through the Noise. And uh, as I was preparing for this morning's message, I, I went, I, I want to understand this concept of through the noise just a little bit more. And, and I, like, I like doing research and I like finding definitions that help me understand and then sharing definitions because it puts us all on the same page. So when we talk about cutting through the noise, that we're able to, to agree on what that does mean. And there's an idiom that says cutting through the noise, and it means that you are able to communicate in a way that grabs people's attention. And I love this series that we're doing because every person that has got up to share has brought another facet of what it means to communicate in a way, in a context, in a setting, in an environment in which people's attentions are captured or captivated or arrested, whichever word you want to use, so that the truth of who Christ is, the truth of who our Savior is, the, the, the Savior that we've just sung about is not just a reality for us, but actually permeates the environment in which you and I find ourselves in. In the last couple of weeks, it has been um, what they call it, book week in Queensland schools. Who's had to do costumes for book week? And so what normally happens is my son or my grandkids will call Omar, Cheryl, and say to Omar, hey, Omar, this is who I'm going is. Do you have material and can you make me a costume? And so Cheryl, well, it's either that or they buy costumes. It was like, no, no, just let, 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 let Omar make them for you. And so my grandson, six, calls and says, it's book week, Omar. I want to go with Jesus. And the book is the Bible. Now, that's cute to my heart. That's kind of cute that a six-year-old wants to go as Jesus. And so he runs off. You can hear in the background because we're all on speakerphone at our house and at my son's house. And, and, and so they run off. The little boy runs off. And myself, my son, and my wife are talking about how we're going to do this. Cheryl's got rolls of calico. She's a quilter. So there's always calico in the house. And how are we going to unwind the calico? And how are we going to make this costume that, that talks about him being Jesus? And I'm Googling pictures. And Casper comes running back, and he goes, I'm not going to go with Jesus. And I went, that Casper changes his mind regularly. And I said, what do you mean you're not going as Jesus? And he says, well, Dad, he says to his dad, but to me, Opa, the truth is, if I go as Jesus, no one, no one in my class knows who Jesus is. No one will recognize me. And in that moment, the profundity of his comment for a six-year-old at his preschool? Yes, preschool. And yet the pain that I felt in me, the wincing I felt in me, that if he decided to use the Bible as a book and went as Jesus, no one would get who he is. And then we're talking a little bit more because it's kind of like my, my, my grandpa heart, my opa heart is kind of going, well, you, I want you to go with Jesus. I mean, I'm an evangelist. I want you to go with Jesus. Go with Jesus. Show them Jesus. Tell them Jesus. And we, somehow the conversation moved on that he actually said, well, if I went as the devil, they'd all know who I am. <laughs> and I thought, well, that's just your behavior sometimes. Anyway. And I thought it's just strange that a six-year-old, not strange, confronting that a six-year-old would understand 
that if he went as Jesus, he wouldn't be recognized, but if he went as the devil. Now he's going as thing one from Dr. Seuss, and I suppose thing one can get saved in the meantime. <laughs> they would not know who he was if he went as Jesus. They might not, but the spirit of this world does. There's a historical account recorded in scripture where the people were not sure of who Jesus was. In fact, they were afraid of Jesus and asked him to leave their town. However, the spirit of this world recognized him as Jesus, begged for mercy. One man knew, one cured man knew. And for the sake of that one person and for the many one persons you and I have in our world and in our lives now and until we breathe our last breath, we're going to tell that story today. And we're going to connect with a story of liberation, a story of salvation in a hostile and frightening moment so that we might encourage one another to step into and speak through the noise, no matter how hostile the moment might be. So we're going to explore Mark 5 verses 1 to 20. But if you go to that passage of Scripture, uh, both Matthew chapter 8 and Luke chapter 8 both speak into the story. So what I've done is I've taken the liberty of synthesizing three pieces of Scripture. I'm no biblical scholar, so I probably shouldn't do this. But I took Mark chapter 5 verses 1 to 20 and then filled in the gaps from Matthew chapter 8 and Luke chapter 8. And I want to read the account to us for a moment. Please bear with me as I read. They sailed to the region of the Gerasenes, which is across the lake from Galilee. When Jesus stepped ashore, there were two demon-possessed men coming from the tombs to meet him. They were so violent that no one could pass that way. They shouted, have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? Jesus was then met by the demon-possessed man, a man with an impure spirit from the town. For a long time, this man had not worn clothes or lived in a house, but had lived in the tombs. No one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart, broke the irons on his feet." No one was strong enough to subdue him, night and day among the tombs and in the hills. He would cry out and cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and he fell on his knees in front of Jesus. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In God's name, don't torture me. Jesus commanded the impure spirit to come out of the man. Many times it had seized him, and though he was chained hand and foot and kept under guard, he had broken his chains, and he had been driven by the demon into solitary places. Then Jesus asked him, what is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out to the area hillside the demons begged Jesus to let them go into the pigs and he gave them permission and when the demons to the steep bank into the lake and were drowned those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in what had happened when they came to Jesus they saw that the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons was sitting there dressed 
and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and talked about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. So he got into the boat and left. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell people in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. Not an uplifting Sunday morning Father's Day type scripture passage. But so pertinent for you and me because we find ourselves quite often in hostile situations. And we're having to cut through the noise. You know, when Josh spoke, and Josh kind of spoke about the difference between Kronos and Kairos, and Chris spoke about hospitality and friends, and I'm going, this is really nice, but what about the hostile moment that we might find ourselves in? There where Christ is not welcome. There where you, as an ambassador of Christ, is not welcome. What about those moments, and how do we cut through the noise when it's something similar? to what Jesus and his disciples experienced on the other side of that lake that day. And the more I try to find cute scriptures and nice scriptures, because there are some nice ones, the more I felt God impress upon me this story. And so I share it with all of us to encourage us to pick up out of it the truths. We've read the scripture I'm going to break down the scripture a little to make us aware of some of the things. And then I'm going to share an account of this happening in real life, being in a hostile work environment and having vitriol shared at you. And you're having to maintain your Christian faith and your Christian position to cut through the noise. And then I'll end up with three just helpful thoughts that I think are what Jesus did what was done in practice, and just to encourage us with three things. And then we're going to spend some time just kind of holding that moment. So I just kind of want to give you a roadmap of where we're going over the next 20 minutes or next 19 minutes. So as we look at this story and we start to unpack it, we start to realize that this is a crazy story. And there are some pretty crazy things. One commentator actually preached this message somewhere uh, in, in the States, actually Iowa. And there are pig farmers or hog farmers in Iowa and then got into a lot of trouble. And this whole dispute around pigs and would pigs be in Jerusalem, et cetera, et cetera. And the pollution in the river. And we're not, we're not going to go there this morning. But it's a crazy story with some crazy things. The other thing to remember is that the garrison was a Gentile land at the time. And Jesus was just going about his everyday business. And here we find him stepping out amongst Gentiles. And if you hadn't picked it up in the story or hadn't had time to comprehend what was happening in this moment, is I just want to make you aware that when Jesus stepped out of that boat, by virtue of the law, he stepped into unclean soil. He was amongst unclean, Gentiles, heathens, people. 
He was accosted by someone who was hanging around the dead, unclean bodies, which immediately would make Jesus unclean. There were unclean animals present, the pigs. Why would he do that? And then the Bible story tells us he gets straight back into the boat and goes back to where he came from. Why would he put himself there? You've got to go back to Mark chapter 4 to understand. There's a whole lot happening. And in Mark chapter 4, verses 35, Jesus actually says, hey, we're going to the other side of the lake. And I'm sure his disciples must have thought, you're crazy, man. Do you know what's on the other? Do you know what? Who's on the other side of the lake? Probably what to a Jew. But who's on the other side of the lake? Do you know that when you get off the boat on the other side, the predicament you're going to find yourself in? Do you realize the trouble you're placing us in or positioning us in if we go over to the other side of the lake? But Jesus had predetermined in Mark chapter 4 as we read, hey, we're going over to the other side. And then if you read the story, going over to the other side wasn't an easy job because that's where they encounter the storm. The storm. So between Jesus going, hey, we're going to the other side. I've got a job to do on the other side. There is something that I am compelled to do on the other side of this lake. There where it is unclean. I've got to go there. He, they have a storm. And we, all, we don't have time to go through the story of the storm. But that's when the storm is on the sea, on, in, in the ocean, and the disciples are worried. So on Jesus, knowing where he has to go, on the way there, he has to go through a storm first. But Jesus is at peace. It's the other people that are worried. So there's a storm that he has to confront before he gets to the other side. And when he gets to the other side, here he finds... These men. Uh, Matthew talks about two. Mark and Luke talk about one. What happened to the missing guy? Well, commentators talk, well, well, we'll get there. We'll get there. So there's two, but there's one. Just stay with me. On the way over, the, these men were suffering physically, mentally, and spiritually. They lived in continual torment and pain. To them, life seemed meaningless, merciless, and hopeless. How often do we find ourselves in places that, where it is hostile? And it's hostile because this is how people really see their world. People feel that they're living in a place where life is meaningless, where life is hopeless, and where they're suffering physically, mentally, and spiritually, they find themselves as outcasts from their own community. When you think about the story and you start to look at the socio-demographics or what was happening and why these people found themselves where they are, they were rejected by the very people who should have loved them. They were kicked out of society because they were classified a risk to society, to comfortable living. And so it was better for them to be out there away amongst the dead with rotting flesh and horrible smells. Hmm. Do you want me to finish the, the sentence or ask the question? Or have you got there yourself? How often do we reject people because they're hurt and they're broken? And they are upset. And their life is to them meaningless. And they find themselves behaving like these people behaved in some way, shape, or form. 
and because they cannot conform to what we call our clean, nice, cute society, we push them to the dead before they're dead. They would harm themselves by the very things they did. As I read this, I actually had this picture, old scars, fresh wounds. That they would have hurt themselves. It says that they cut themselves with rocks. Not sharp instruments, blunt instruments. They continue to hurt. How often do we, or do we know of environments that we find ourselves in? Do we understand a community where that they're hurting and they don't know anything different and all they're doing is continuing to hurt themselves? And we judge them and we push them to that place of the dead, even though they're not dead because we're scared to cut through the noise in the place that is hostile. They called out day and night in their anguish. So much when you find yourself, and I'm going to share an account of a real situation, people will cry out because they're hurt and because they're broken. And they will say things that they feel like they mean, but they don't. It's their pain. It's their suffering. Uh, I, I, I don't know if you've been in a place where you, where, where you are at night and it's nice and quiet and dark, and then you hear someone having an all-out fight somewhere else in the community that you're in and you hear the shouting and the, the yelling and bottle smashing. That's what it's like for these people and what we do is we say, I don't want to cut through the noise. I'm going to push them back. They can make a noise there amongst the dead. Even though they're not. We're not told about the other man. Some commentators indicate that the one person was made whole and the other person continued in the way they were before. We don't know. It's an assumption. But for some of you, I know you wanted that question answered. One commentator writes about oh, um, uh, the result of this passage of what Jesus does on the other side is that what happens is you find a man that is broken, healed, restored, and then sent to tell people about Jesus. What a beautiful ending to quite a horrific beginning. My prayer is as I share this scripture, as I share the account, as I share some of the common things with us, that it would encourage us not to be fearful of the hostile moments, but to step into them like Jesus did, even if it was getting on a boat, going to the other side, getting back on the boat and coming back so that we might cut through the noise and proclaim Christ as King, Jesus as Lord and Savior and see people hurt. This passage encourages us strongly to step into the neighborhoods where we work, play, live, and to work with God through the noise. Here's a true story. 
in transitioning between Cheryl and I pastoring our own church up in North Queensland and what God had next for me, I found myself con uh, under contract employment running a federally funded program for long-term unemployed people. It was run by Christians and it was run in a Christian facility. A week before the program began, the agency responsible for providing us with the funding and the participants did an on-site visit and reminded us that in no way were we to proselytize, discuss our Christianity, or make anyone feel judged. They were concerned for the participants stepping into a worship facility and the reaction that it would create in them, and they, the organization, did not want trouble from us. It was exactly as they had shared with us. On day one, we had 20 participants, unemployed, long-term unemployed, turn up. Each arrived as if carrying a suitcase filled with their stuff, their issues. And the moment they walked through that front door, it's as if the clips on the case came loose and the, the contents were jettisoned across the room, landing on me and on the other staff member. Hostile and outspoken are inadequate words to describe the vitriol and yet banal diatribe that issued from both their manner and their means. Their verbal veneration of their own preservation continued with comments like, and this is as they walk through the door, I am a lesbian and I know what the church thinks about me and I don't need to be reminded. Another comment, I practice witchcraft, I'm a white witch, leave me alone. The church was my home, but it turned its back on me, and I said I would never darken its doorways, and look, here I am. And the one you see up there, don't try anything Christian, or I'll thump you, said with a very strong German accent from an alcoholic with corresponding expletives. Another alcoholic who had had his dance with the church and had thrown away the dance card, disappointed a, a long time ago, let us know exactly what he thought of the church and what he thought of myself and the other person as we were both pastors. I just said to the other guy, hey, this is going to be an interesting ride. Hold tight. I don't like roller coaster rides, but we're in for one. Worse than the Scooby-Doo Scooby -Doo ride's the worst ride I've ever done, by the way. I don't do roller coasters. And I, only, and I got tricked by a bunch of people onto the Scooby-Doo ride. And it went backwards and it went fast and it was dark and it was scary. I don't like rides like that and I just felt this was going to be it. And then to add it a few weeks into the program, a person transitioning joined the program fearful and we were reminded that they had a first class ticket in their hand straight out of the program at the first sign that they felt threatened by us. That was the program for three months. That was the hostile moment we found ourselves in. That is where we try to, in some way, shape, or form, bring Jesus. By the end of the three-month program, there was no hostility. Complaining had been replaced by laughter. Might I even indulge myself and the other person that says a level of mateship was fo had followed. The church, their issues with it became normal. Even healing conversational topics followed about the church. Several requested to return to our facilitated program because of their experience. We were put down as references on their resumes. Several commented that if they had encountered the church and pastors like they did in this program, they possibly 
would have had a different faith trajectory. Many had shared their stories into unemployment and the yuck that it had introduced into their world. And they invited myself and this other person into their story and to walk with them even for a while. Our alcoholic mate, who wanted to thump me, was diagnosed with terminal cancer a while after he had exited the program. And the first person he called was me and this other, this other guy. And he asked, can you come and talk to me? And can you come and pray? When I walked in, I said, you want, I actually reminded him of his words going, you said you were going to thump me if I try anything. Can I be assured that you're not going to thump me because I'm going to try something? I'm going to lay hands on you and I'm going to pray in tongues. In preparing this message, I had a conversation with the other person who co-hosted the program with me to reflect on my recollection of the events and that they hadn't moved into legend status. Their words to describe our time there was, what salvation looked like to them was liberation. How true. I knew there had been a positive impact on them. I had not truly reflected that. Yes, in some way they had found freedom. And who knew what their faith trajectory would be post the program? That was not our work. That was the work of the Holy Spirit. We had been about our daily business. We had encountered strong opposition. We had taken authority in the name of Jesus. And we had cared for them with real compassion and love. We had stopped and listened, apologized where necessary, confronted and challenged as appropriate. And we did not give up on them. Not one iota. We believed in them and a better future for each of them. That was 2015, 2016. I still get the occasional text, little less now than what it used to be when some of these people hit rock bottom or when they're looking for a reference point of where they were last seen. I'm still asked six years later to provide a referral as a referee for a job and I have to say, no, I decline. I can't do that, but I can talk about you and I can talk to you. I'd like to believe that we managed to cut through the noise and were able to communicate the gospel of Christ in a way that captured their attention. Even if for a moment, our work done, we trust in the work of the church. And I still pray for them every time the Spirit of God brings them to my remembrance. Nothing out of the ordinary. We turned up every day. We were real, we cared, and we knew our God. And I don't even try and understand Time, or better said, at the end of time, will tell the impact of that program on those people's lives. We're running out of time, three minutes flat. There's three things that I think, three keys, if you're going to cut through the noise that worked. Three things Jesus did, three things his disciples did, three things Paul did. Three things myself and this other person did. And I want to give them to you as tools or encouragement. Please, be authentic. This is so much more than transparency and vulnerability. Can people see what you stand for? Or do they have to guess? Be consistent in your choices and with how you communicated and have integrity that your, 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 your conversation and your actions actually align. And be attuned to the timing. The right thing at the wrong time is the wrong thing. 
be attuned to your timing. Josh spoke about Kairos, and that message really challenged me, and I've been mulling over it for ages. Some moments are weighted different to others when you don't see it as Kronos, but Kairos. When you see the opportunity, some moments have a greater weight. So be attuned to what the Holy Spirit is doing. So how are we going to spend these last few moments? For those who don't know, that's computer coding. It's binary, ones and zeros. Cutting through the noise at a basic level. I'm going to ask us to just sit here in absolute quiet. Now, the sound man might try and rescue you with some music, but he's not. I've asked him not to. I need you to sit and hold the reality of the historical account of an example of it in effect and to contemplate what hostile environment you might find yourself in. And before we leave here today, that you find a place of peace where you can be authentic, consistent, and discern the time.